Thanks for listening to the podcast from River's Edge Church in Spokane, Washington. For more information or to gather with us on Sundays, please visit our website at respokane.org. We hope this message is impactful for you and others as we pursue the way of Jesus together. continuing in our series through the book of Revelation this morning, and uh, I'm particularly excited about uh, our teaching this morning as we finish our journey through the middle section of uh, the book. So if you have a Bible, you can go ahead and turn with me to um, Revelation chapter 20, verse 1. Uh, If you're new to Scripture, this is all the way in the back. This is like one of the last pages uh, in your Bibles. Uh, if you were here with us last week, then you know that um, what lies behind us as we enter chapter 20 is 14 chapters of seals and trumpets and signs and bowls of wrath uh, being poured out against the evil of this world. Uh, and the Bible, uh, the book of Revelation specifically, uses a beast and Babylon as images of that evil. Uh, So we're right in the midst of a highly symbolic world as we journey through these chapters, uh, which for most people uh, are the most confusing chapters in all of Scripture. But we're nearing the end uh, of this uh, section. Uh, If you have your Bibles open, uh, you can glance back at chapter 19, which is the lead up to today's text, and you'll see just from the chapter headings that it speaks of the fall of Babylon and the defeat of the beast, which was the end goal of all of the trumpets and bowls and everything that we read about over those 14 chapters. Uh, So the beast and Babylon are defeated. They are behind us. The new heavens and the new earth are out in front of us. They're on the horizon. They're approaching quickly. But before we get there, right in between the two, we encounter this odd paragraph that speaks of a thousand-year reign of Christ. And this single paragraph has been the source of endless debate within the church. What does this paragraph mean? Uh, Is it symbolic? If so... What is it symbolic of? Uh, These questions are about as old as the text itself. We've been wrestling with them for thousands of years. And so what we want to do this morning is read this paragraph and then explore a couple of options for how to interpret it. Sound good? Okay, we're doing it either way. So um, here we go. Uh, This is Revelation 20, starting in verse 1. John says, I saw an angel coming down out of heaven, having the key to the abyss and holding in his hand a great chain. If you're new this morning, we're so glad that you're here. Uh, He sees the dragon, that ancient serpent who is the devil or Satan, and bound him for a thousand years. He threw him into the abyss and locked and sealed it over to keep him from deceiving the nations anymore until the thousand years were ended. After that, he must be set free for a short time. 
I saw thrones on which were seated those who had been given authority to judge. I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded because of their testimony about Jesus and because of the word of God. They had not worshipped the beast or its image and had not received its mark on their foreheads or their hands. They came to life and reigned with Christ a thousand years. The rest of the dead did not come to life until the thousand years were ended. This is the first resurrection. Blessed and holy are those who share in the first resurrection. The second death has no power over them, but they will be priests of God and of Christ and will reign with him for a thousand years. If you were to continue reading over the next few paragraphs, it describes after the thousand years, Satan is released and then destroyed, followed by the resurrection and judgment of all people and the ushering in of the new heavens and the new earth. So everything after this paragraph becomes increasingly clear. Everything before this paragraph, those 14 chapters that we studied last week, all follow this um, pattern of sevens. For those of you who are here, you remember, of there's these bowls and these trumpets and these signs, and it follows this pattern. But right in between the two, you get this odd paragraph. And so the question becomes, the question we want to wrestle with this morning is, what do you do with this 1,000-year reign? How do we interpret it? How do we anticipate it? So historically, uh, there have been three major viewpoints or interpretations of this paragraph, and these are the viewpoints. They're known as post-millennial, amillennial, and pre-millennial. Millennial just means the thousand years, the thousand year period. And so if all of this is new to you, um, if, and you've never heard any of this before, that's totally okay. All right? So if you're like new to church, new to the Bible, this is just going to sound crazy. Um, and, and that's okay. Uh, but our goal this morning is a very simple one. We want to present these three different views on the 1,000-year reign and explain why it matters. Uh, what are the options for interpreting this single paragraph? And how does that actually shape my life? Uh, why should I care? Make sense? Okay, so uh, we're going to jump right in and begin interpreting this paragraph or this passage. And I believe that, Chris, you're going to kick us off with the um, post-millennial view. When defining post-millennialism, I, I think it's important that we actually start with the word itself. Like all the varying viewpoints that we'll be discussing today, uh, Tracy with amillennialism and uh, Matt taking on the premillennial viewpoint, there's actually a brief definition in the word itself. Uh, I'll give you an example. For post-millennialism, it means after the thousand years. Post actually meaning uh, after and millennial actually referring to that thousand years. Now, there are some post-millennials that would actually say that this is simply symbolic or figurative as opposed to a literal approach to the millennial uh, reign. But whether it's a literal thousand years or a figurative thousand years, starting when Jesus ascended to heaven or 70 AD when uh, Jerusalem fell, or even that the millennial age has yet to begin, one thing is for sure, and I think this is key to understanding this viewpoint, is that for the post-millennialist, Jesus is not coming back until after this thousand years. 
Rather, Jesus is ruling and reigning from the heavenly realms. This is important. So Jesus is ruling and reigning from the heavenly realms, and he's reigning on earth through the church, so through us. Postmillennialists um, generally believe, from if you if you take the logical conclusion of this, they generally believe that the world will actually get better, that that the church will continue to increase in its influence around the world, and over time, eventually, the whole world will be, or at least most of the world, will be more or less Christian, and the kingdom of God will expand on earth over time again through the church, through us, and. If you've noticed here, just based on that alone, that brief definition, that there is a positive outlook for the postmillennialist. And, and the actualization of this golden age, the how does God bring this about, is seen as more of a progression done through everyday tools that all believers have access to. So things like prayer, training, funding and sending out missionaries, us holding this church in this building right now, barbecues in the park, these ongoing moves and really ordinary, um, you know, ordinary moves of the Spirit delivered through, again, ordinary means will continue to permeate through the world, ending in, and, and this, is, this is really key, ending in an eventual worldwide spread and adoption of Christianity. Now, now a couple strengths and a couple weaknesses of this viewpoint, and I know there are plenty more that many of you guys can come up with. But these are just two strengths and two weaknesses that I'd like to highlight. One strength of the post-millennial view is that it creates a sense of missional optimism and confidence in regard to the expanding kingdom of God. The Puritans, are, are, I think, are a great example of this. Their emphasis on missions was a byproduct and, and in some ways, it was a catalyst of their adoption of the post-millennial viewpoint. And if you didn't know, the Puritans were generally, or, or most of them, um, especially John, Jonathan Edwards, was a post-millennialist. This optimism regarding the success of missions was rooted in this understanding that the church would reign, the gospel would flourish, and we would usher in this golden age through ordinary means. Again, things like small groups, uh, missions, and I know I mentioned that before, Sunday gatherings, these general moves of, spirit, uh, of the Spirit, and, and, and not some cataclysmic one-time revival event. It's not going to all happen at once, according to a post-millennialist. And really, it's, it's similar to what we've seen here at River's Edge. This optimism that the world will eventually get better, paired with the belief in the power of the gospel going forth into the world, really does yield a hopeful anticipation of the future. Another strength would be in regard to interpretation. For example, in Matthew 13, 33, it, it states, the kingdom of heaven is like yeast that a woman took and mixed in with three measures of flour until all of it, now this is key, not some of it, but all of it was leavened. The postmillennialists would view this scripture as pointing to the idea that the influence of Christianity will continue to increase, just like yeast in, in a lump of dough will eventually overtake that lump of dough, so will the gospel to the world. Culminating, again, in, 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 in a worldwide adoption of Christianity. A couple weaknesses. One week, and there are, there are plenty, plenty more, 
uh, one weakness of this viewpoint could be the uncertainty. And this, this one for me is one that I struggle with. I wouldn't really call myself a post-millennialist, but this, this, this is an area that I do struggle with. And, and it's regarding the uncertainty of the start of the thousand years. Did it start at the death of Jesus? Was it, the, was it the resurrection? Was it 70 AD when Jerusalem fell? Uh, maybe the birth of the printing press? Or, or, or maybe the Reformation? Has it not yet happened? And when will it happen? Now, of course, we can all agree that the first three I listed, uh, death of Jesus, his resurrection in 70 AD, if taken literally, couldn't have happened as it's a thousand plus years overdue. I'm not great at math, but that one's a, a pretty sim simple math problem I think I can... I can solve. So when exactly does this millennium start? This uncertainty for me, again, is, is, is one area that I struggle with in regard to this viewpoint. The other weakness could be the idea that the world is getting better. Even though Christian, Christianity, as far as statistics are concerned, is actually at an all-time high. There are actually more Christians now than ever before. And there's no denying that Christianity in the West in particular is on a rapid decline. So on one hand, you see a rapid decline, and you also see a, a rapid increase of Western influence around the world. So, so my question is, will, will this upswing in Christianity meet its fate as it comes face-to-face -face with this ongoing increase of post-Christian Western ideologies? And for me, this obvious decline in Christianity in the West could pose pose problems for the premillennialist who expects Christianity to keep spreading across the world. Tracy? Thanks, Chris. So you guys, uh, you got it figured out yet? So we're entering into a conversation that's been taking place in the church for 2,000 years. It's no surprise that there's three views, and it's no surprise that some of the views are going to overlap a little bit. And as I share a little bit about what amillennialism is, uh, I think you'll see that. Um, amillennialism is basically uh, just adding an A to the front of the word, uh, which means no, no millennium. Amillennialist doesn't believe in an actual, literal, millennial thousand years. It's not literal. Remember what Matt said back in October when we began this journey through Revelation, that it is... The book of Revelation is a book written in three genres. It's poetic, it's apocryphal, and what was the third one? Prophetic. Thanks, Mark. So we see numbers, we're not to think of literal numbers, we're to think of them symbolically, and there should be a little uh, chart here to look at. And Matt shared this uh, maybe a, um, about a month ago. So seven deals with, when you see the, the number seven in Revelation, it's dealing with fullness or completion or often dealing with God. The number six is a lack, a lack of fullness. It's, it's a lack, it's not, it's, imper, it's imperfect, it's not fully complete. The number 1,000 generally refers to a lot or a long period of time. 12, 24, 144 referring to the people of God. So we've gone through six weeks of study. We've been looking at all of this symbolic imagery. Why would we get to Revelation chapter 20 and say that thousand years is absolutely literal? The church, especially the early church fathers, 
and some of the other uh, kind of theologians, I guess, who helped us understand how to, how to interpret the Bible have kind of adopted the amillennialist view over the last two centuries. So the amillennial view regards a thousand years mentioned in Revelation 20 as a symbolic number, not a literal description. Amillennialists would hold that the millennium has already begun, that when Christ uh, was resurrected, that's when the church age began, and the church age continues until Christ returns. Christ will return in final judgment. He will establish a permanent reign in the new heaven and the new earth that Matt talked about. An all-millennialist view would believe that the kingdom of God was inaugurated at Christ's resurrection, at which point he gained victory over both Satan and the curse. And Christ is now even reigning right now at the right hand of the Father over his church, over his people. After this present age, after this church age ends, when Christ returns, Christ will return and immediately usher the church into their eternal state after judging both the good and the wicked. Nonmillennial view was widely held by many early church fathers, which I mentioned before, Oregon, Athanasius, and is affirmed in two of the preeminent creeds of the early church that contain verses that clearly lean toward an amillennial belief. They are the Apostles' Creed and the Nicene Creed, which we've talked about over the last couple of years. The Apostles' Creed contains the words, He, meaning Christ, Christ shall come again to judge the quick and the dead. Doesn't mention, it seems odd that they would leave out this thousand year reign after He had established it if, if that wasn't to take place. But it implies that both judgment and the resurrection will take place at his coming. The Nicene Creed states that Christ shall come again with glory to judge the quick and the dead, whose kingdom shall have no end. Now, if he's reigning, if he's coming to establish a kingdom for a thousand years, that would be in contradiction to not only Scripture, but to the early creedal understanding that Christ's reign is not only now, but it will continue on. The amillennial position became held as the orthodox view in the church after being adopted by uh, St. Augustine in the late 4th century. It remained the dominant view in the, through the medieval period, and uh, the Reformed theologians, especially Bollinger and uh, Calvin, adopted the, the same uh, amillennial position. So some strengths and weaknesses. I think the strength of the amillennial position is in its understanding that the imminent return of Christ is the consummation of all things and marks the fullness of both the kingdom of God and the age of come. That's when the fullness is going to be brought into, into effect. Christ will return to judge the world, as evidenced in scriptures like Matthew 13, Matthew 25, 2 Thessalonians 1. He will raise the dead, talked about in in 1 Thessalonians 4, 1 Corinthians 15, he will make all things new, 2 Peter 3. He does not return to set up a kingdom, as in historic premillennialism, but to usher in the eternal state and create a new heaven and a new earth, in other words, the final consummation. The biggest weakness of the amillennial view is, is in the details. What does John mean by the binding of Satan? What does that mean? He's clearly out there. He's clearly causing problems even today. K. 
Can we really say that Satan is bound? I would say yes, because an amillennial would believe that the binding of Satan took place during Jesus' earthly ministry. Satan was restrained by God while the good news of Christ's salvation was announced. And that restraining order against Satan is still in effect. It's still in effect. Satan was not only restrained while the good news of Christ's salvation was announced, but it's still in effect and in force today as the gospel continues to go out. So the thousand years in Revelation simply mean that the extended period of time when Christ was resurrected until he returns is that time that we're in right now, this church age. Another potential weakness, what about the first resurrection that Matt talked about in Revelation 20? It, it talks about a first resurrection, and then after the thousand years, a second resurrection. So you have to go, I'm not going to go through the scriptural backup for that. I'm going to save you of, of all of that this morning. But really, is John referring to regeneration or the bodily resurrection, or is he talking about what happened when Christ was resurrected? And these things would require a fair amount of explanation, especially, I think, since the dominant view in America is one of premillennialism over the last century, which Matt is going to explain to us now. Okay, so deep breath, everybody. Um, I know this is dense. This is probably, like, content-wise, the densest Sunday that we'll ever have uh, because there's just a lot. And, and if you're new to the conversation, then all of these terms are like, what are we talking about? So just to reset... Near the end of Revelation, before the new heavens and the new earth, there's this mention of a thousand-year reign. So we're wrestling, what do you, what do, you do with that? The post-millennial might say, hey, that could be a literal thousand years, but it's going to happen through the church. The amillennial is saying, hey, no, that's, that's like just symbolic. It's figurative, but it's happening through the church. And then the third view, uh, which is the one that I'll present, is called premillennial. Uh, and the premillennial view is um, fascinating for many reasons. Uh, first off, premillennials are, in some sense, are kind of the new kid on the block. Uh, there was a form of premillennialism in the very early church in, in the first couple centuries, but there's kind of a new form of premillennialism that's uh, kind of re-emerged uh, just in the last hundred years. Uh, and it actually came about largely from the publishing of something called the Schofield Reference Bible, uh, about a hundred years ago, and all of a sudden it, it spurred this kind of new resurgence of uh, premillennialism. And despite being new, just kind of re-emerging in the last hundred years, uh, premillennialism pre-millenn- uh, actually dominates kind of the American Christian landscape. So most American Christians uh, either haven't really thought about this topic, um, because as you can see, it's kind of dense and confusing, or they have thought about it, and they consider themselves uh, premillennials. And so what a premillennial uh, would say is that there will be a literal thousand-year reign of Christ on the earth um, with some, a part of the church will be resurrected, and there will be a literal thousand-year reign. Christ will come back in bodily form. He will sit on a real throne physically in Jerusalem. Okay, so it's, it's different than these other approaches of like Christ ruling from heaven in seeing the kingdom move forward on earth. Um, Many of the people who hold this view also believe that there'll be a rapture of the church, um, either before or after uh, a great tribulation that's going to happen on earth. Uh, So 
while these other views might see the, the giant middle section of the book of Revelation, those 14 chapters, they might view those chapters as, oh, that's probably something that, was, that happened to the Roman Empire. Now we're in the thousand-year reign. A premillennial would see things very differently. They would say, no, 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 those 14 chapters are talking about something that will happen at the end of the age before this literal thousand-year reign happens. So if I'm a premillennial, I'm thinking there's lots of tribulation at the end of times, perhaps a rapture is involved, and then a literal thousand-year reign of Christ on the earth in Jerusalem with some who are resurrected. And so uh, they see this as a separate, very unique time in human history. So some of the strengths of the uh, premillennial view, one is that it takes the passage very literally. Kind of what you read is what you get. It's not symbolic. We're not in that age now. It's, it's going to happen just in the way that we read it to happen. Uh, another strength is that it explains the unique binding of Satan in that age as something that's separate from what we're experiencing right now. Uh, and they also um, point to the unfulfilled promises to Israel in the Old Testament. So if you read through the Old Testament, which very few Christians actually do, you'll see these, all, these, all these promises God seems to be making to Israel that never truly seem to get fulfilled uh, for them in any unique way. And so they'd say, oh yeah, all those unfulfilled promises are actually going to happen on earth in Jerusalem during this thousand-year period. Um, and then generally speaking, I would actually list this as a strength. They generally believe things will get worse at the end of time before Christ returns and not better. And many premillennials would say, hey, that, that kind of matches the tone of Revelation uh, and even the decline of Western civilization. Uh, and we, we, a lot of us are kind of expecting things to get worse at the end of time. Uh, some of the weaknesses to the premillennial viewpoint, which again is the dominant view in America, it tends to downplay the symbolic imagery that Tracy was talking about, which we've really highlighted through the series. So there's, I wouldn't say they ignore the fact that it's apocalyptic literature, but sometimes that's kind of downplayed and said, no, if it says that, we need to take it literally, even though there's a lot of stuff in Revelation that is symbolic and not literal. Uh, it views much of Revelation as strictly about future events. So they look at the, the massive you know, chapters four, or 6 through 19, and say, yeah, this is all strictly about the future. So for the most part, they tend to ignore uh, connections to Caesar and the Roman Empire and, and kind of run over the fact or set aside the fact that it's a letter to real people who would have understood what they were reading about. Um, and then I would list as a potential weakness that it's often, I don't know why, but this view is often paired with this idea of a rapture, and they kind of read that into Revelation, even though if you read Revelation, it actually never mentions uh, a rapture at all. Uh, but that's kind of read in along with this viewpoint much of the time. So just to recap this view, premillennials believe that Jesus will return, literally, in body form, binding Satan in a unique way, bringing about a first resurrection. He'll rule for a thousand years on a literal throne in Jerusalem, uh, and that will lead us up to the end's the end of the age. So a strength for the, this viewpoint that's, that's um, currently very popular in America is that the, one of the strengths is that it's a more literal reading of the passage, which ironically can tend to be its weakness as well. 
um, because it can tend to ignore some of the genre along the way and what it would have meant to its original audience. So, deep breath again. Um, there you have it. That is a brief outline of three different views and some of their strengths and some of their weaknesses. Um, is this a thousand-year reign that will happen through the church on earth? Is it purely symbolic of the age that we live in? Or is it a very unique thousand-year period that will happen in the future? Uh, but I want to run through these views one more time, more briefly, and I want to ask this question. I want to ask, why does this matter? Okay, what, what difference does it make how I interpret this thousand-year period or what I anticipate at the end of the age? How could these viewpoints potentially affect my life as a follower of Jesus day to day? So um, we'll, maybe we'll run back through, Chris, if you want to start with post-millennial. Absolutely. For a, uh, for a post-millennialist who sees the world as getting better, there's no denying that the view of the millennium actually does affect your day-to-day -day life. Uh, you know, for the post-millennialist, instead of seeing a snake under every rock, there's a sense of optimism, right, around every, every corner. It's going to get better. It's, 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 you know, we may, it may be bad for a season, but there's going to be a progression towards a better world. And, you know, for, for the post-millennialist, there's less of a need maybe to hoard food uh, in, in your walls and, and build an underground bunker because the end is near. This doesn't mean that bad things won't happen. Um, the the post-millennialist wouldn't, wouldn't negate the fact that wars and famines do exist, and they may continue to, you know, continue on. However, the difference is it, it, it changes it changes your view of the eventual outcome. So for the post-millennialist, he's going to say, yes, it may be bad in the moment, right? But eventually it will get better. And there will be a progression toward the actualization and progression of Christianity on earth. And the end of the world is happening. I don't know if you've ever been in Georgia and, and drove through, uh, drove, cut through, all, you know, that, that their main highway has a trillion billboards and between those billboards, it's usually, you know, every one out of ten, you're going to see a end of the world is happening, a doom and gloom billboard. Now, for a post-millennialist, I couldn't picture them actually buying one of those billboards. It just wouldn't make sense. You see, for the post-millennialist who views every move of God as a means to a better world, the doom and gloom forecast simply just wouldn't be part of their everyday vocabulary. Now, as you can see, this, this view actually does affect your day-to-day -day life, and maybe your finances if you want to buy a billboard. Um, that might save a little money being a post-millennialist. <laughs> um, but yeah, so it does view how you change the world around you. The impact of missionaries, the, the fruit of the gospel spreading, and the anticipation of the future, all filtered through this lens of the end times. And, and, and last, again, this is, there's, a, there's a positive and a negative, but I would say this is still a negative, or, or still a positive for the post-millennialist. There are more Christians now. This is a fact. There are more Christians now than ever before. And the Christian movement is growing faster than it ever has before. And that's exactly what the post-millennialist would say. He would say, yes, exactly. It is progressing, and it's going to keep progressing, and it's going to keep getting better, and Christianity will continue to spread. They, the post-millennialist, expects the rule and reign of Christ through the church to spread across the entire earth and usher in 
an age of peace. Thanks. Tracy? Thanks, Chris. So, we're in the seventh inning stretch. Any baseball fans? Yep, get to stand up. You know, it's time to, we're almost there. Yeah, stretch out a little bit. This millennial debate is going to go on for another, how long? Until Christ returns. That was the right answer. Okay. That could well be, Mark. Did you notice how many of these views kind of overlap with each other? The reason we're having this discussion this morning is because we want you to be informed. We want you to search the scriptures and, and, and understand when you're talking to someone who holds a different view, what, what, where they're coming from or what they might be thinking about this. But I think many of us deliberately preoccupy ourselves with speculation about how the world will end as a way of avoiding the uncomfortable fact that the world, in fact, in its present form, will end. We live in a Western society with more things, and we're right in the middle of the thing season, than we could ever have imagined. And, and the Bible tells us that things the way we know it, this season, this life as we know it, is going to come to an end. It is going to change. Matt mentioned there will be a new heaven and a new earth. And sometimes kind of deliberating on this is a way of avoiding this uncomfortable fact. In fact, many Christians, I think, are so preoccupied with exactly how and when it will happen that they ignore Jesus' words in Matthew 24, verse 36, which says this, Concerning that day and hour, no one knows, not even the angels of heaven, nor the Son, but only the Father knows. So when he's going to come back, only God the Father knows. Those are Jesus' words concerning that day and hour. Jesus' words seem calculated to me to prevent this endless speculation on the subject. So why does it matter then? Remember when I was in seminary, there was this uh, kind of a mentor pastor, an old pastor who was a mentor of mine. He was asked about his view on the millennium. Well, are you a premillennial? Are you an amillennial? Are you a postmillennial? He kind of smiled and he said, Well, I'm a panmillennial because I believe it's all going to pan out in the end. <laughs> now, that's an old joke that was heard long before 1998, but there's a lot of truth, I think, in it because it gets at something important. If you are in Christ, if Jesus Christ is your Lord and Savior, None of these end-of-the-world scenarios will truly be the end for you. None of them. None of them is going to be the end for us. However the details work themselves out, whatever the actual nature of the millennial, the millennium, whether it's a literal thousand years, whether it's happening now, whether it's going to happen in the future, whether there's a pre-trib, mid-trib, post-trib, rapture, whatever that's going to turn out, whatever that view is, the Lord will return, we all agree, in full majesty and power and exactly as he promised, and he will not lose, it says in the Bible, even one of those the Father has given him. And he will raise them up on the last day. And until then, until that moment, the promise that the end is coming really ought to motivate us to go into the world with a sense of urgency and make, make disciples. 
of all nations. That's why we have it up on this banner behind us. Make disciples of all nations. Telling our friends that there is freedom and joy and safety in Christ alone. As Jesus himself said, it is not for you to know the times or seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses to the ends of the earth. Awesome. Thanks, Tracy. Um, So, we're finishing up. Last kind of closing thoughts. Why does it matter? We're stereotyping in this, right? But a post-millennial might be saying, hey, I'm going to move forward with optimism. There will be bumps along the way, but the kingdom will grow and grow and grow until it overtakes the landscape of the earth. The amillennialist might be saying, hey, we just, we're living in that age. Jesus has the victory. We just follow him. Just like listen to what Jesus says and follow him. Um, then the, the third view, the premillennial uh, which is the dominant view in America, is, is going to have a little bit of a different take in mentality when it comes to the end times. Because remember, the premillennial is saying there's going to be these huge trials and tribulations. I mean, stuff's going to really hit the fan. At the end of the age, it's going to get worse and worse and worse. And then Jesus is going to come back and rule from Jerusalem, physically from Jerusalem on the earth before this age ends. Uh, and so, as a premillennial, a, a premillennial is more likely to be scanning news headlines and looking for, you know, catastrophes and things that might line up with the book of Revelation. Uh, they're more likely to look at events with the nation of Israel itself because that space and that nation actually becomes very significant to a premillennial. And you're kind of reading the signs of the times. Is this the end? Are things getting worse? Are these tribulations beginning? Uh, If so, brace yourself. So there's this sense that sort of Armageddon and maybe even a rapture of the church may be right around the corner. And that can definitely affect the way that someone lives day to day. It was pre-millennials who published the Left Behind series uh, and books like 88 Reasons uh, Why the Rapture Will Be in 1988, okay? And when 1989 hit, without exaggeration, they kind of went back and said, okay, well, now there's 89 reasons why the rapture will happen in 1989. So there's this sense, as, and I'm not saying every premillennial buys into this stuff, but for many premillennials, there's a sense of which, hey, the end is near. It could happen any moment. If you see someone selling freeze-dried food on TV for the end times, it comes from a premillennial perspective because I'm expecting things to get worse. I'm expecting these great trials and tribulations on earth. Uh, and uh, many, of, many premillennials would say, hey, I think that could happen really soon. So if I'm physically preparing my home to survive through trials and tribulations, uh, if I'm mentally preparing uh, for some sort of rapture, that's typically born out of a pre-millennial viewpoint. A post-millennial wouldn't be storing up food in their basement because they expect things to get better and better. And they say, oh, there could be some bumps along the road. There could actually be a war or famine. But a pre-millennial is more coming at it. And hey, when the end of the age comes... It's going to be terrible. Uh, A lot of bad stuff is going to happen, uh, and so we should brace ourselves for that. Uh, And if you really think that's going to happen, it makes sense to live in light of that and prepare for it. Um, And so if you're reading chapter 6 through 19 and thinking this stuff is going to go down soon, 
you're going to live uh, differently in light of that. Um, and so, again, I'm going to stereotype and pull out some extreme examples, but in an extreme case, a premillennial might say, I see the signs, I think the age is going to end, so I'm going to withdraw and, you know, store, like store up a bunch of food and go live in a cabin because I think like the tribulation's about to hit. I've seen people go the other way in an extreme and say, I think the world is about to end, so I don't need anything. So rather than like stockpile and withdraw, I'm just going to give everything away and like go move to Mexico and just start telling people about Jesus because there's only a few days left before the end of the world. And so if, you, if you're taking one of those um, pathways or you fall into one of those classes, of course it's going to affect the way that you live, and the way that you structure your life. So again, a post-millennial might be saying, hey, for my mission trip, you know, I'm headed to China um, to like, spread the gospel with optimism because I expect the gospel to just spread like wildfire across that entire nation until it topples the government. I expect it to grow and grow and grow until it dominates the landscape. That it, there's a sense of optimism built in. Premillennials uh, might be thinking very differently, uh, and they they would think naturally. They would think differently about the nation of Israel, and even the role that Israel will play in the end times. And so, again, if I can choose an extreme example, I've heard of premillennial pastors leading mission trips to Israel just to bless Israel, um, and as part of that mission trip to like bless Israel, they actually went and washed uh, the military tanks like as if it was a car wash or something. They just as like, and prayed a blessing over the Israeli military. Okay, why would Christians do that? It actually comes back to this paragraph, to this thousand-year reign. What do you think will happen at the end of the age? Is there going to be this giant Armageddon scene in and around Israel where Christ is going to come and rule from for a thousand years? Well, that affects the way that I engage with Israel. So he's going on a mission trip to China in the stereotype, to see the gospel spread like wildfire as he expects it to. And a premillennial might be saying, hey, I'm actually going to go on my mission trip to Israel to bless what's going on there because stuff's about to hit the fan. Armageddon's going to go down, great trials and tribulations. Christ will rule from this place. You see the difference there. So again, I'm stereotyping and I'm exaggerating the differences so that we get a sense of uh, the ways they can potentially uh, affect life. But as a premillennial... Um, from, if you're coming from that viewpoint, it would affect the way that you read the news. It would affect the way that you prepare for the end times. It would affect that you expect things to get worse. It affects the way you view uh, the nation of Israel. And even the way you might preach the gospel and live your life, and, and all of it can be affected by the way you approach the millennial reign and the, what you think will happen at the end of time um, based on the book of Revelation. But here's the catch. And if you've been tuning out for the last 20 minutes, there's grace, you're forgiven, but tune back in, okay? Just a brief thought as we close. I want to mention that though this can make a difference in the way that you live your life and what you expect to happen in the end times, our church does not have an official stance on the millennial reign, okay? Even among the elders, we might have different leanings and different ideas and and different interpretations of this, 
but we hold our view of the end times with a loose grip. Uh, There are churches or church leaders who will make uh, your view of the end times or even your view on this specific paragraph on the millennial reign into the biggest issue in theology. As in like, hey, if you don't agree with my view of the millennial reign, then you're like hardly even a Christian, right? And so we, we reject that mentality, that more extreme mentality that says this is the most important issue in your faith. Uh, and we really see this as a debatable issue within the church. It is my sincere hope that here this morning, we have people from all three of those viewpoints, from all three of those uh, perspectives, uh, and we can lovingly engage one another and, and stir one another to re-examine the scriptures and consider all of the angles. We can dialogue. And so I think each one of us recognizes that while we might have a specific view that we feel most comfortable with, we could be wrong, and that's okay. Like, it, even if you get this terribly, terribly wrong, you're going to be okay. In the end, you will die or Jesus will return. And if you've trusted in him, you will enter the new heavens and the new earth. End of story. If I'm a post-millennial and all of a sudden Jesus shows up in bodily form to rule from Jerusalem, I'm going to be okay. Like, right, I didn't anticipate that. That's not how I interpreted that paragraph, but I'm going to be okay. Uh, And the reverse is true, too. If I am expecting him to show up in bodily form to rule from Jerusalem and he doesn't, I'm going to be okay. Like, we're we're all, everyone who's trusted in Jesus is going to make it. And so we want to engage in Scripture as accurately as we can, uh, but I think the thing that I would argue for most strongly in all of this is that this topic isn't as important as we sometimes make it out to be. So we want you to be informed. We want you to know where people are coming from. We want you to be able to engage in Scripture in a way that's informed and intelligent. But no matter which view you buy into, it shouldn't define you. And we actually all agree on the important things. And so I think we'll end with this. All three views agree that Jesus is currently at the right hand of the Father, that he died for our sin, and that we triumph over evil by the blood of the Lamb and the power of our testimony. We are called to advance God's mission and God's kingdom on earth and remain faithful in our witness. One day, Christ will return to rid the world of all evil. And all who profess faith in Jesus will be resurrected into the new heavens and the new earth. The rest is details. And so we lovingly engage with the scriptures and with one another. We live as best as we can in light of the things that Revelation speaks of. But all of us, eagerly, more than anything else, across the board, all of us, eagerly anticipate Jesus' return. 
and what it will mean for us and for creation. Let's pray. Jesus, uh, we come before you now, Lord, in humility, um, professing that we believe you to be the truth. You are the way, Jesus. You are the truth. You are the life. And so, Jesus, when you um, say that you are coming back, uh, we just stand in solidarity with one voice this morning and say that we believe you. Uh, in the midst of a, a um, cynical, uh, post-Christian Western culture, uh, we stand in one voice this morning and say, we believe you, Jesus. Uh, we actually believe that you are going to come back. And, and we stand in solidarity, not just as one voice in this room, but we stand in solidarity with, with, with your saints, with your followers throughout history who actually saw the injustice of this world, the darkness of this world, the brokenness of this world, and cried out, how long, Lord? Not exactly how. They weren't saying, God, show us exactly how you're going to come back and, and what's going to... They just said, how long? How long until you come back, Lord, and end evil on the earth? How long until you make all things new again, until the curse, the brokenness, the difficulty, the darkness of this life is done away with? And so we, we come to you now, Jesus, uh, as people who may have a wide variety of ideas about this paragraph of Scripture but who stand in one voice on everything that truly matters. You will return. Evil will be done away with. And everyone who's trusted in you will be resurrected into the new heavens and the new earth. One day, the groans of creation, groaning, how long, O Lord, will, will change into cries of celebration into absolute ecstasy as we say he's here he's back again he's come to rid the world of evil to renew the heavens and the earth and we will be there with him we thank you for that reality that's out front Jesus help us live in light of that reality come and meet with us now as we worship you Jesus' name. Amen.